Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. You killed them. We killed them. We? Remember your little accident in the laboratory? Performance enhancers. Bingo. Me, your greatest creation. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Uh, and listeners, if you are wondering why I sound the way I do, I am coming to you live from the Queen City of the West, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I'm here at the uh, Cincinnati uh, Comic Expo and uh, selling with a punch in the art. And short version is I was not able to get my regular recording suite packed, so I'm using some some outdated equipment. So if I sound a little grainy or buzzy or, or, or echoey or whatnot, uh, that is the reason. Also, this hotel room has abysmal acoustics. And this time around, we were looking at the uh, cooking offer look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy with this film, Spider-Man from 2002. It was uh, directed by Sam Raimi, produced by Laura Ziskin and Ian Bryce, on a screenplay by David Kep. Based on Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. It stars Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, Kristen Dunst, James Franco, and um, the guy that played J. Jonah Jameson. Why is that not listed as the main thing? J.K. Simmons, of course. Um, also has Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris are in there. Music by Danny Elfman and cinematography by Don Burgess. Edited by Bob Morosky and uh, Arthur Coburn. Um came out in the United States May 3rd, 2002, uh, runtime of 121 minutes, so pretty short for this kind of a film, and uh, off a budget of $139 million, made a worldwide gross of $821 million. Yeah, this this movie did very well, and it's it's amazing how long it took this movie to get made uh, because in the in the late nineties, uh, the first Blade film was the movie that broke the Mighty Marvel movie curse, but it still took them. Over it still took them five years to get a movie based on one of their core heroes out. Yeah, you know, I learned a little bit about the reason why that was from a film about um, Canon Films and Golden Globus and all that. Oh, the complicated uh, Spider-Man film rights. Yeah, yeah, but the the movie I saw was called The Go-Go Boys, The Inside Story of Canon Films. Isn't that the one that Golan and Globus made for themselves? That's right, my mistake. It is Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. But Classic yes. documentary. Yeah, um, and they, they talk about, you know, uh, Marvel was, was not doing well, it was near bankruptcy, and they couldn't, you know, aside from that TV show, The Incredible Hulk, and a few Spider-Man cartoons here and there, they couldn't get like a real big budget movie done, so they were selling the rights on the cheap piecemeal, where it just was limited to uh, a particular group of characters. Like the contracts were that specific, 
And uh, at Canon Films, Golden Globus were wanting to have uh, Michael Dudikoff of American Ninja fame play Peter Parker. Um, that didn't happen, but because of their foothold in the rights, sort of like with that Fantastic Four film with Roger Corman we mentioned in a few uh, weeks ago, um, they were just unable to, to do it. And uh, James Cameron had a, a script written that I think the bad guy was Electro. Uh, no, the bad guy was Doctor Octopus, and he had he, oh he had been very okay. vocal that he wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the character. Now I've I've read a leaked version of that script. It's not all that good. Although, mind you, Cameron's not Cameron's not the best writer. But he can elevate crap through good direction, so maybe if it had made it to the screen, it would have been better than the script indicated. But I'm glad that's not the version of the movie we got. Yeah, I heard he wanted to have DiCaprio as a Spider-Man or something. Um, but, I mean, later, you know, Sony spent a while massaging uh, the, the script into place and, and getting this made. Um, originally, Sony wanted Heath Ledger to play Peter Parker, and Heath Ledger turned them down. Um and they went with Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, and uh, the rest, as they say, was history. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, Spider-Man was kind of the third in three superhero films that kind of kicked off the superhero movies being popular again because you had, you know, some bad Batman movies, some bad Superman movies, and um, after all that, you had you know kind of the, the dull drums and then with uh with wesley snipes's blade people forget that one for some reason and then the first x-men film and then spider-man was like number three of the the sort of franchises that did really well and it made a comic book movie sort of a more viable thing again of course that means we also got shit like daredevil but then <laughs> ghost rider and some of that stuff but you know um that's what happens so well what's what's fascinating about this about this movie uh you know that I realized rewatching it for the show is that this movie is something of an interesting artifact because it is, I'll go so far as to say it, it is the first of the modern comic book movie blockbusters. Um, I consider X-Men more of a preamble to those. Hmm. And well, it's, well, it's very modern in that sense. It's full. It's the last hurrah for a lot of things that these movies shed mostly for the good uh, and beyond that, it, it, when you look at the way it's written and the way it's structured, they clearly made it not thinking they were going to get a sequel. So there's a lot packed into this movie that would have been parsed out over several films if they had known going yeah. in that it was going to be a franchise. And, and we'll get into that. But um, when did you first see this film? Was it in theaters? Was it with your family or your friends? Uh, or? I first saw it. I first saw it uh, in theaters uh, with my friends, and then again uh, with family later that summer. Uh, so I saw this twice. I don't think I saw it opening night. It may have been opening weekend. It may have gone to a Sunday matinee. I saw this uh, with a friend who had already seen it two or three times. He was a big, We were both big Spider-Man fans, but my friend would see opening night every time. I, I've only done opening night, I think, once. And uh, that was for uh, Attack of the Clones for, for some god-awful reason. I so, did the same thing. Yeah, uh... And I think especially after the um, the the murders in the theater in Colorado for that uh, for the Dark Knight Rises, it, it makes me even more hesitant to see a hey, call me superstitious, but it makes me more hesitant to see a, a midnight opening for a film. Um, but you know, Spider Man, 
a friend of mine, he had seen it before he dragged me to it, and uh, I liked it, but I think what my friend enjoyed, and I think he had a good point, is it made all these kids interested in Spider-Man um, that would not even know who he was in the first place. Um, I, I will challenge you. Spider-Man is one of the most recognizable fictional characters that we have in this country. He's recognizable, but like people don't read comics as much as they used to. There, it's It had been a while since there had been like a decent, long-running Spider-Man cartoon on TV. MTV did like one for one season. I think that was after this film or something. Yeah, it was after. Um, Lisa Loeb as I think Mary Jane Watson, or, or, or was she Gwen Stacy? All I know is Lisa Loeb played a character. Uh, you know, she was in it. It, it. That was the one with Neil Patrick Harris as Spider-Man, um, who did a pretty good job. Although it was in sort of like in clumsily animated CG. I think in one episode the janitor was the bad guy. Um, I watched a little bit of that. I was not too impressed. But anyway, I mean, with this with Spider-Man movie, this was heavily, heavily uh, promoted. I, I recall in the graphic novel adaptation, Stan Lee did the script for it. Um, I, I don't recall who did the artwork, but I thought that was interesting. It was... Um, I, I think, too, this one embraces the fact that it's a superhero movie. I think Blade and X-Men were trying to hide it. To, to an extent, you're right. I mean, this... You can tell that Sam Raimi has an both affection and knowledge of the source material. Um, and then beyond that, this is a movie that, that was bigger than itself. It had a lot of impact. So not only starting its own franchise and getting the ball rolling on a lot of other comic book uh, movies... It is from this movie that we ended up getting the Marvel Ultimates universe, which only recently, in the grand scheme of things, wrapped up. Oh, did they wrap it up? I had no idea. Um, I guess before we talk about the film, let's talk about you know what background we have with the comics. Because you mentioned Spider-Man is so well-known. He's sort of the... Uh, you know, if you were to tell people to name three superheroes, it'd probably be Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man would be my guess. But um, You're probably accurate on that one. Yeah, and so what do you think about, you know, was, was Spider-Man one of your, your favorites uh, reading it when you're before going into this film or what were your thoughts on the character at the time was it the clone saga was that what was going on in the comics or is that a bit before oh, oh no the, the the clone saga had was long resolved by the time this movie I see. came out okay um and and the like i i will like all all throughout my life i I've, I've sort of i've never followed the spider-man comics but it's one of those comics where i can always when i get that when i am in the right mood i'll just pick up a random issue uh and enjoy it um i don't really i don't really read it for the continuity i, I just it's it's one of the it's one of the comics where if i just pick a random issue off of the newsstand i will be i will be generally satisfied uh that being said i've watched every television version of spider-man the original uh the original ralph bakshi series from the late 60s the live action series from the 70s uh a numerous animated incarnations such as spider-man and his amazing friends um mm. the late 90s spider-man animated series that had the theme song by the drummer from aerosmith Th those are i've, I've always i guess i i is as well versed as I am in the comic. I've probably spent more time watching Spider Man on television than I have uh, than I have reading the Marvel comic book. Yeah, I you know I think I first got into it with that '90s cartoon, and I rewatched a, a crossover episode with Doctor Strange of it because it's streaming in the United States on Hulu right now. The whole series because they didn't even make the whole series for sale on physical media, um, which is somewhat bizarre. 
considering how popular Spider-Man is. And um, it, it, I'll just say it does not hold up too well, and we'll probably talk about those spinoffs in a separate episode. But um, I also, you know, Marvel were doing, I think it was called Marvel Essentials, where they reprinted a lot of the old comics in black and white on cheap newsprint. Oh, yeah, those are great. Yeah, yeah. I think it actually, you know, I think I find some of the colors um, to be garish in the older comics, and so you can admire the inking a bit more in the black and white versions, um, paper quality aside. You know, so I read the whole Steve Ditko run of Spider-Man and then some of the John Romita Jr. stuff. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which was after these films, I got into, I got in the habit of buying a trade, reading it, and then mailing it to my cousin, because um, his dad really liked Spider-Man, uh, my uncle. Um and also, I, I to prepare for this, I watched a BBC documentary from 2007, In Search of Steve Ditko. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it. Regrettably, I've never seen it. Although D- Ditko is, is both a fascinating and a frustrating character in comics history. Yeah, you know, they go into the stuff he did before and after Spider-Man. Uh, just, uh, listeners, if you don't know, Steve Ditko uh, illustrated Spider-Man, but he also helped with a lot of the plotting. And um, he quit Marvel in the middle while Spider-Man was, like, super popular, and Doctor Strange he also co-created. Yeah, um, Steve Ditko quit Spider-Man at its height due to a philosophical disagreement he had with Stan Lee over the direction the comic should take. Right, and um, you can tell Steve Ditko's artwork not just because Spider-Man has armpit has uh, webs in his armpits, but um, Spider-Man, or Peter Parker, looks hyper-anxious all the time. Almost to the point where it's like unsettling. Um, I prefer John Romita Jr.'s, or sorry, John Romita's artwork. I think that's more sort of classic Spider-Man. But you cannot uh, overstate what what Ditko did, and it. Um, yeah, there's something fascinatingly weird about the Ditko stuff. And in this documentary, um, the, the the British host uh, Jonathan Ross, who I guess was a comic book fan, but uh, I've, I've seen him host a lot of different programs. He goes with Neil Gaiman. Uh, in Manhattan, and they actually go and talk to Steve Ditko, but they can't do it on camera, which is a bit disappointing, but not surprising. Um, they also try to nail Stan Lee down, and Stan Lee gives kind of a shifty answer to Steve Ditko's um, contributions to Spider-Man. Oh, is, it, is this the, inf- the infamous interview where he's like, I will give him a certain amount of credit as co-creator of Spider-Man. Right, and then afterwards he's like, see, now you have me saying that on camera. I shouldn't have said that. Um, but, like, he, he wrote a letter. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's before this movie came out, <coughs> Steve Ditko in a fanzine wrote, and I'd love to read this, but I, I have not, um, wrote, like, a 20-page comic about, like, um what his contributions to Spider-Man were. And it didn't call out Stan Lee by name, but it's obviously that's what it was going at. And uh, it talks about, you know, ethics and credit and goes into a lot of weird side things. Um, and, and this fanzine had become so popular that Stan Lee had to issue a, a public letter that was published in the New York Times, I think at the front of all their comics for a bit. And the word of it, is, the wording of it is very strange. Um... I mean, so what do you feel about the whole credit issue? And we'll get into the film here pretty soon, listeners. But um, what do you think about the whole credit issue? Because it's it's not like Batman, where like Bill Finger was not credited for decades, right? Well, the early Marvel, a lot of the a lot of when the Marvel Age of comic books began, um, 
a lot of those books were born out of frustration, desperation, and a general sense of, well, fuckitism. Uh, and they were heavily collaborative. Um, it, it, it was never a one-man show. It was never strictly regimented that a writer was only going to write, the artist was only going to do the art. Everybody contributed to characterization uh, and to plotting. It's just that because of the way the credits page works, only one person's ever going to get story credit. Only one person's ever going to get penciling credit. Only one person's ever going to get delineation credit. Um, And Stan Lee, being a ruthless and aggressive self-promoter, it's in his interest to say that he created X. Even even sure. if it was far it was far far more collaborative. I mean, Stanley's and this is this is pieced together from you know various interviews and sources. What I'm saying now, but like Stanley, Spider Man was born out of the notion of well, what's a superpower we we haven't done before? Ooh, what if he could climb on walls? That's a neat power. Well, what do we call him? Well, we can't call him the Fly. That's an ugly name. You know, oh, oh, Spider. Spiders, yeah, spiders are mysterious, dangerous, and erotic. We'll call him the Spider-Man. And that's kind of where it started from. And from there, you know, working with Steve Ditko is when they came up with the idea that, well, let's make him the average age of our readers. Let's make him a late teenager. And, you know, let's give him real teenage problems in addition to the superhero stuff. And let's yeah, make yeah. it let's make it establish that he has a personal relationship with all of his villains. Um, but yet it, re- it really was collaborative. And be- beyond that, the origins of Spider-Man extend beyond Kirby and Ditko. Um at the time that the comic was being worked out, when the first issue was being worked out, Steve Ditko was roommates with a New York cartoonist named uh, Eric Stanton. Uh, Eric Stanton, if you remember Eric Stanton today, you probably know him from his magazine uh, Stantunes, which was a publication, a magazine that he self-published for years, which was a collection of his fetish artwork and short fiction. Um it leans towards probably more extreme tastes, even by today's standards, so you may not want to look the Stantunes up. But anyway, they were roommates at the time, and Eric Stanton was the guy who came up with the mechanical web shooters. Because even at the time, they were agonizing, well, we know we want him to have a spider web power, but how are we going to, how do we want to draw this? What is it going to look like? And apparently, well, Working late one night uh, while they were drawing in the apartment, Eric Stanton says, well, why doesn't he have a gadget mounted to his wrist that shoots a web and you can do this little web pose? And so he doesn't get any credit, never saw a dime from Spider-Man, but he created... Well, I mean, yeah, in fact, um, yeah, in fact, after Stanton died, his his estate uh, tried to contact Ditko and tried to get them to push a narrative that uh, Stanton and Ditko were the two creatives of Spider-Man and Stan Lee wasn't involved at all. Which I, I think isn't really correct, um, but I mean, right? And it, you're right. It, it, it was very collaborative back then. There was a lot of handshake deals. There was a lot in writing. Um, the I, I found the open letter that Stanley wrote in '99, and this is the sentence that Steve Ditko found offensive. Oh dear! <laughs> I have always considered Steve Ditko to be Spider-Man's co-creator. It is the use of considered. Mm-hmm. Ditko would have preferred a statement. Steve Ditko is the co-creator of Spider-Man. Yeah, I can I can understand how that can be taken as a real dick move. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but let, let's get into the movie. But um, I, anyway, I'd highly recommend that Steve Ditko documentary. It's on YouTube floating around. Um, let me go into the plot of this really quick. Um, there's a teenager, Peter Parker. He lives with his aunt and uncle. His uncle uh, gets, um, gets murdered during a botched carjacking. This, among other things, inspires him to be a hero. It, it turns out some people, um, the, the dad of his, his best friend dresses up as a goblin, and they fight, and the goblin dies, and that's, uh, that's Spider-Man. In broad strokes, yes, that is the essence Extremely of Spider-Man. Extremely broad strokes. Uh, so let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um, or let's talk about the cast, I guess. I feel Tobey Maguire um, and James Franco look way too old. To be, I think everyone in this looks way too old to be high school students. Well, to be high school students, yeah, they um, they should have gotten out of high school as quickly as possible in this movie, so we don't have to dwell on it. But that being said, I do think Tobey Maguire is well cast. He is. I think he's a better Peter Parker than he is Spider Man. He um, he gets the nerdy, goofy thing down. He, he doesn't talk like in a super nerdy voice, you know, he could have really overdone it, but I think he makes you feel sorry for him. Well, I mean, he just plays himself, uh, really. It seems very it seems very effortless, the way he plays Peter Parker. Yes. Um, Willem Dafoe, I think, is very good as Green Goblin. Uh, originally, Nicolas Cage was considered for the role. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would have been something different. Harry, how you doing? Yeah, um... We're gonna be Spider Man, huh? Sp- Spider Man, huh? 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 Yeah, um, so, so Green, Green Goblin, Goblin is. Uh, it's interesting that's what they picked as the villain. Because um, you people associate Green Goblin with the Gwen Stacy story. Uh, yeah, which is which is one of the artifacts where you can tell they didn't know if they were gonna get a sequel, which is why the love interest is. Mary Jane, Mary Jane, who is the yeah. is the is the character that Peter Parker ends up with in the comics, as opposed to Stacy, who is his first true love, who unfortunately in the comics is is killed by the Goblin. Right, and at the time, you know, the, the look of the Green Goblin was criticized. I think now it looks okay. Like it's it's definitely. I mean, if if you had it literally look like it did in the comic, it would look stupid. Well, I don't know if you've seen the footage. They did a makeup test for oh, a no, version of the Goblin that would have looked more like the comic book version. And what did that look like? It doesn't look good, and and the reason it doesn't <laughs> look good is that it's an it's an animatronic head that is meant to really resemble what's used in the comic book, but. It, it runs into some uncanny valley problems, and I think it would have been much more effective if instead of being an animatronic head, it was just straight up make, uh, applied makeup. Hmm. So overall, I think they made the right choice making making the the Green Goblin this terrifying mask that he wears, as opposed to a completely morphed up face. Yeah, uh, Kirsten Dunst, I think, is pretty good as Mary Jane. They they don't give her a whole lot to do in this first one, but she. You know, they, they have kind of the love triangle going on between her and Peter Parker and uh, um, Harry Osborn, which I think is a nice touch. You have uh, James Franco as Harry Osborn. James Franco would later work with Sam Raimi on a lot of other movies. And um, he was just off of Freaks and Geeks. Um, and I think he's... 
He's good. You know, when I look at the Osborne stuff in this movie, it reminds me a bit of Trump. Really? That, well, it, just in the sense that they come from, like, a rich background, and they're trying to relate to Peter Parker despite all of their privilege, and um, I just detected little hints of that, but I, I think that might be the current political climate polluting my views. Um, yeah, though I do, I do like that they do that, because that's... This is one of the first comic book movies. Well, I, I say I say I say first when really the Donner Richard Donner Superman has this too. It's that you can you can see Sam Raimi's affection for the source material on the screen, and that goes so far as to is to make sure that he gives Peter Parker a close relationship to his villain, and in fact. The, I think the only thing that makes the Green Goblin an effective antagonist in this film is the fact that he does have a personal relationship with Peter Parker. Hmm. Uh, how do you feel about Uncle Ben and Aunt May, played by Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris, respectively? I think they worked out. I mean, they <laughs> the Uncle Ben, actually, even today, looking at the performance of Uncle Ben... It 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 looks it looks like it's Jack Kirby as Uncle Ben. Mm, yeah, uh, and I mean, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May looks straight off the comic book page. Like that's astonishing. And and me. she has this perfect sweet old lady vibe that yeah may, may um, even be like an anachronistic in its way, but it works so well for the execution of the character. Definitely, and like it's in the later Spider-Man movies, the credit progressively make Mary Jane younger and hotter. Not Mary Jane, uh, Aunt May, younger and hotter, um, which, which is an interesting uh, thing. Uh, it also should be mentioned, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is just about perfect. Like that's, um, Stan Lee has famously said he wishes he would have played this part. Yeah, as as the Spider-Man comics uh, went on. J. Jonah Jameson became more of a character, a caricature of Stan Lee, and it was it was a character through which Marvel's writers and artists could vent their frustration at Stan <laughs> Lee. Um, although he seemed to take it with gentle good humor, uh, but yeah, I, actually, look up a photo of Stan Lee from the seventies. He mm. looks just like J. Jonah Jameson, but with a broader mustache. That's funny. Um, interesting bit of trivia. The, the actor that plays Flash Thompson, do you know what he's from? Uh, no, no, I don't. Joe Mangialniello, he, that's oh, a from young, True Blood. from True Blood as the werewolf, and he also was in the Pee Wee Herman movie on Netflix. But he's very young in this, and, um, he thought, wow, you know. yeah, I didn't even recognize him. Right, I just knew that from reading, uh, Joe Mangialniello, I can't pronounce it. Came out with a book that's like part memoir, part fitness book, and he goes on at length about he thought Spider-Man was going to be his big break, uh, and it wasn't, and he didn't work for like two or three years after that because he blew every chance he had. Um, and he makes a cameo in Spider-Man 3. I did not know that. I'll have to look for that when we get there. But yes. Well, it gives us more to talk about when we do Spider-Man 3. Uh, well, there'll be a lot to talk about that picture, but yeah. So, I mean, that's basically the cast. I think it's, it's pretty well cast. Um for the most part. It's it's nice that you get Ted Raimi in there as kind of the assistant to J. Jonah Jameson. Well, I mean, it's tradition. It's a Sam Raimi movie. Ted Raimi's got to show up at some point. But yeah, he, he does he does a good job. Lest we forget, Ted Raimi was on, I think, season three of Sequest. 
I thought he was there from the beginning. No, I don't think so. Oh. That was a show that rebooted every season. It was quite strange. Um, oh, yeah. It, it jumped through some weird narrative hoops. Mm-hmm. That's neither here nor there. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, let's talk about Spider-Man. It is, uh, yeah. So, I mean, how, how do you think the setup is? Because I, I, I broke up my watch, and I like to break things down. And it's like an hour before um, Spider-Man puts on the actual real suit. Like, yeah. they take their sweet time doing the origin... And well, he gets picked by the spider pretty fast, I suppose. But um, I mean, they really take their time building up the characters before the superhero stuff starts, and I think that's smart. Yeah, overall, it, it works, and I think the reason it works is Spider-Man is one of the few characters whose origin story is truly a story and deserves space to breathe. Like you know, like Batman, kid's parents are murdered, grows up, learns martial arts, gets gadgets, fights crime. You, you can sum that up really quick. You know, Superman, alien from another planet, crashes on Earth, raised on a farm, becomes Superman. No problem. With, to explain Spider-Man's origin, you have to tell a story about a frustrated young man bitten by a radioactive spider who tries to use his powers for personal gain, who gets careless and selfish, and that selfishness costs him the life of the most important person in his life. Costs the life of the most important person in his life. He learns a valuable lesson, and only at the end of that story does he become Spider-Man. Sure, and it is just... Um... That, that you get, especially the, the stuff with um, Norman Osborn being sort of a paternal figure to Peter Parker and seeming to like Peter more than his own son, I think is interesting. You don't get Willem Dafoe, mainly because of how he looks, I think, um, as a good guy. And that he starts off as a good guy and he has an arc himself um, is pretty interesting. Oh, no, what do, you, what do you think about the ways that they tried to to modernize the origin story, such as, cause, such as going with a genetically engineered spider as opposed to a radioactive spider? I'm fine with the genetically engineered stuff. I mean, listen, this was after Jurassic Park. You had, like, DNA and genetic stuff everywhere in the news. Um, I think that's fine. You know, radioactive is such a 50s thing. I, I, I do think it's a bit... Um, they go a bit heavy with... Showing, you know, these computer mock-ups of what the spider's DNA is, and then we get a big CG sequence of the spider DNA looping into the human DNA. I could have done with a little less of that. It feels like a, a knockoff of Fight Club's title sequence. Um, but other than that, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I think the spider looks a bit cartoony with its colors, but maybe that's the point. Well, I think... I I think th that was some attempt to justify like when you look at Spider-Man's costume it's an amazing costume but there yes. are no red and blue spiders like you only know that he's Spider-Man oh, yeah, because true. of the spider right. iconography and the web iconography mm -hmm. uh, I, I, it's sort of a nice touch that the genetically altered spider has that coloration and that Peter Parker cares that much to have the same coloration on his costume <laughs> Right, um, you know, I think the effects in the movie don't hold up too well, but what's good is, I, I like the sort of slowdown they do with the fight between Peter Parker and Flash Thompson, because he has this sort of hyper-awareness of what stuff is happening, and she Yeah, they do a up... decent job, because the, one of Spider-Man's classic powers is the Spidey sense, which is this, this 360-degree danger sense that he has, that combined with his reflexes... You know, it allows him to escape danger very quickly. 
it's one of the hardest things to to depict on screen. On the page, it's great because you can always show wavy lines coming out of his head or do that classic shot where half of his face is Peter Parker's face and the other yes, half is the yeah, Spider-Man yeah. mask. In the movie, you got to resort to some to some simple framing and camera trickery, and they do a decent job in this. That's right. It's um, pretty neat the way they. It's sort of you see like flies flying in slow motion, and you see the the spitball going through the straw. It's it's a bit cartoony, but it gets the the point across because you can't if they put wavy lines on like a movie still that just looks stupid like it, they had to do something and i think they did a good solution um i also think it, it's interesting when he punches flash so hard he goes flying against the room it's not like everybody cheers everyone is sort of horrified a lot of people are kind of horrified mary jane in particular um which i thought was a neat wrinkle in there well like looking back at, at that it almost makes me wonder if because if this was if this was an '80s movie, I'm sure people would have cheered. But I'm wondering if the scene comes with an awareness that if this were the real world, that might be where the school massacre would begin. Uh, I never thought of that. Maybe so. so um, like the the the, the yeah, sort of fear yeah. and disappointment in everyone's faces doesn't come from Peter Parker being a quote unquote freak. It comes from this paranoia that what if this is the moment that all order starts to break down. I think it's also Peter Parker is so mild-mannered of a character that he really beats the shit out of Flash and really hurts him. And people weren't expecting it to go that far. And it's like, whoa, I don't know, should I let go of this Peter guy? I don't know, man. Um, and that, actually, you're, you're getting very close to one of the few weaknesses of this film. Uh, and that's uh, the... The physicality of the Peter Parker performance versus the physicality of the Spider-Man performance. Ugh, and yeah. this is due in part due to the fact that a lot of the Spider-Man shots are completely CGI. Their physicality is so different that I do find it hard to... I, I, I have a difficult time buying that the guy running around in the suit is the same guy we saw at the beginning getting bitten by the spider. Yeah, I think the physicality of the CG is not well done. Roger Ebert commented on this in his review. It, it it just moves around too loose. There's not a good sense of weight to it. And yes, you do get some of the classic Spider-Man poses, which is nice. But I don't I don't think um, CG had gotten to a point where they could do a good job of, of rendering all the movements and not having it look too cheesy. Um, it, it gets better in the other films, certainly. But in this one, he just feels like a leaf in the wind, I'm kind of flipping around. Yeah, in service to those extreme poses and like in, in glory shots of Spider-Man swinging by, there is there is a lot of, of of weight that is that is lost to make that possible. So, what about the, the wrestling scene with Bone Saw? Uh, it's really fun. One because you have the 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 natural in the ring charisma of Macho Man Randy Savage as Bones on that scene. But two, I I love how shitty the Spider Man costume that he wears <laughs> that Peter Parker wears looks. Right, and you get you know Bruce Campbell as the guy, the ring announcer, yeah, the ring announcer, which is good. That was so fun. <laughs> It's really one of those things. It's yeah, and it. Well, the saw is ready when it comes down to it. Yeah, yeah, it was just such a fun. 
nice moment, and you get him panicking, where it's like, oh, I didn't know this was a cage match, and, uh, and that you get, um, what about the way, you know, you, you, this, like, thief, uh, Peter Parker doesn't get paid what he was promised, because he didn't, he ended the fight in two minutes instead of three, so he only gets, like, a hundred bucks instead of three thousand, which he wants to use to buy a used car to impress Mary Jane, but I also presumably because he needs it, um, well, that's and, one of the things is that in the comics, Spider-Man's always having money trouble, and they 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 load yeah. that right into this movie. They do, and they do a good job with it. And um, but what do you think about that scene with the thief running out and he doesn't stop him, and then well, he, he tracks down the thief and all that. Well, I I gotta I wonder I really wonder what what it's like watching that movie or watching watching this scene not knowing Spider-Man's origin story because the moment I see Spider-Man bump into the thief all, all I I immediately feel dread but that's but that's primarily because you know I what's know gonna exactly happen. what's about yeah. to happen because I'm so familiar with the story and and I feel like that I feel like that prevents me from 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 analyzing it with the objectivity that film criticism requires it is, you know, I think that when Spider-Man chases him down, it gets a bit dark for me, for Spider-Man. And especially that he kind of like goes out the window backwards. That always struck me as a strange moment. But yeah, in, in, in case we haven't been clear and you don't know the Spider-Man over the oh, story. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, when when Peter Parker runs into that thief and the guy's like, stop him, stop him, and, and Peter lets him get away... Later that night, that thief uh, is responsible for the murder of Spider-Man's Uncle Ben. And that's why Peter ends up going after him in such a rage. But that's also where that's also where Peter learns the the thesis of Spider-Man uh, that with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm glad that they kept that line in the movie whole cloth. That's right. That's right. It's an important, important line. line. It is, um, you know, I like that you get some of the, the grieving and, and Peter is sort of confused and conflicted with all this stuff. But meanwhile, when, when this other stuff is going on, you get this plot of Norman Osborn, sort of the, the B plot in here. He is, you know, he owns Oscorp. He's, he's trying to sell, he's trying to get this military contract using this sort of... Um, I mean, it reminds me of, like, this stuff from the Bane comic books and Batman a bit, but, you know, he, he has this stuff to get used up with to make super soldiers, and he tests it on himself, and he goes mad and kills his assistant, and then doesn't remember what's happening, and you get this marvelous scene where Norman Osborn is staring in the mirror, and his reflection is sort of the bad version of himself, and it's Willem Dafoe acting against himself very well. It's it's just really well done, and you don't normally get to see Willem Dafoe be sympathetic. And he kind of is, but on the other hand, he also murdered people. Um, whether he was conscious or not, that doesn't change the fact that he killed people. Yeah, and th this is this is one of the the things that I do think holds the movie back because I love I love Willem Dafoe arguing with himself. I love those Golem moments they give him. That yes. being said. I wish they had taken more care with the origin of the goblin because mm, they kind of rush I, into it, don't they? Yeah, because because I think I think one of the worst things you can do is to just flat out make your villain insane. 
because the, one of the best things about the Spider-Man villains is you it's very easy to sympathize with them. But because Osborne's villainy comes more out of him being driven insane by the gas as opposed to him making a series of deliberately poor choices, it, weak, it weakens him as a villain. The the insanity from the gas should have come later. Uh, mm. We should he, he should have done some more villainous things before he went completely mad and irredeemable. Yeah, or even like a, a moment, like another paternal moment with Peter. I think would have been nice to make it more of a gradual sort of um, change. That's a good point, and also. Uh, I think the the other really good scene that Willem Dafoe has is Norman Osborn is Spider-Man and Green Goblin have a big fight in the middle of a Macy Gray concert. Um, and then afterwards, the Osborns and Mary Jane are all having dinner at Peter's house. And um, Norman Osborn notices Peter Parker has a cut and it's the same cut that Spider-Man had from the battle on his arm. Which which is uh, nice, because that's, again, that's another feature of Spider-Man comics. He knows a lot of his villains' identities, and they know a lot of his. And there is some nice tension that's, that's built when you realize that the villain's about to put several important clues together. And he he's right there, surrounded by everyone that, Sp- that Peter Parker loves. And at that moment, you... Uh, Spider-Man feels so vulnerable. Or you can feel his vulnerability in that moment. Um, what do you think? We talked uh, a bit about Norman Osborn. What do you think about the, the Green Goblin's pumpkin bombs and how the glider looks? Uh, the glider, uh, the design-wise, I think it's great. The glider mm. looks uh, the glider looks straight up out of the comic, but without the the, gar- the dumb... I, I, I say dumb, but without the gargoyle head up, up front, which... Sure is something I wish more artists took liberties with rather than giving it just that general wedge-shaped uh, thing. The the goblin suit, I think, is an overall a good design. I think it was the right choice for this movie. Um, and then the pumpkin bombs, I do like... I Actually, I do like the look of the pumpkin bombs. I like that they're just these orange prototype orbs with grooves in the side. Yeah, it looks more functional. It Had there been actual pumpkins, that would have looked pretty silly. And that was the, and that was part of the beginning of the trend uh, of a lot of the films in this time of taking some of the more leap off the page comic book mm. designs and giving mm-hmm. them a grounded reason to exist. And in this case, it's because they're just a prototype grenade. Also, I do kind of like when he throws them and there's that little laser light effect before they blow. That's just a neat touch to make them seem more exotic. It makes you realize, oh, they're not a regular explosive. There's something special going on here. Right. And the only thing about the goblin I'm not crazy about is in some of the close-ups. You can see the eyes are translucent, and so is the mouth. And it's very distracting seeing Willem Dafoe's eyes and mouth in some of those close-up scenes. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a half measure. I'd rather want to completely see his eyes and mouth or not see them at all. That It, it is somewhat distracting when you can partially see them through a, a, uh, a transparent material. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you get a wonderful comic book moment later where uh, Green Goblin comes in and sort of freaks out Aunt May and, and she gives this wonderful scream and you know he he kind of goes through the window and stuff at her. 
and she gets put in the hospital, I guess, because of shock. Like, you don't quite understand the reason why she's in the hospital. But. Well, there could be, she could be under observation to see if she has any physical trauma, because sure, she yeah. got some rough treatment. Uh, she did, she did. And, um, but, you know, she plays the moment well, and I, I just, that struck me as a very comic book moment, the reaction, the way it's shot. You get a lot of close-ups in this film, and that's no accident, because so much of the way Spider-Man was drawn, especially the Ditko issues, extreme close-ups of people's faces looking concerned or nervous or um, or what have you. Now, beyond that, that scene also has another uh, artifact to an earlier era of, uh, of comic book movie making where they make a deliberate winky... They play it straight, but it's a deliberate winky reference to another comic book where she makes that, comic, that comment, Oh, you work too hard, Peter. You're not Superman. Yeah. Oh, Batman Forever had some line about Superman as well. Um, well, well yeah, that, 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 that's why Superman works alone. And, okay, that's it. I'm moving the Metropolis. Yeah. It, it's a bit forced, but I, at the time, like, that was still somewhat novel. Like, oh my god, they referenced another comic book character. Well, Wait, even then, though, in the comics, that, that used to be a gag in uh yeah. the, in both Marvel and DC comics that in the DC universe everyone reads Marvel comics and in the Marvel universe everyone reads DC comics. <laughs> Although then Marvel got all metafictional and uh and I believe this is still the canon where a lot of the Marvel superheroes within the Marvel universe have licensed their likenesses to a comic book publishing company that publishes a line of comic books called The Marvels that retell uh, bodlerized versions of those characters' life stories. Oh, really? Jeez. It's, it's very meta and very complicated and very weird. It read, yeah. read the early 2000s She-Hulk to see an entire story arc that's resolved because of those comics. It's actually rather delightful. Hmm. Um, at, you know, towards the end, we get a sequence that reminded me a lot of a scene from Batman and Robin in which Norman or which the Green Goblin, you know, has sort of a Sophie's Choice for Spider-Man. Which, again, right out of the comics. Yeah, where on one hand there's Mary Jane, the other hand there's a tram car full of kids, and they're dangling from the Queensboro Bridge. And, uh, of course, you know, Spider-Man saves them both. But Well, he, is... he, he finds a way. He finds a way. I like that you see him struggle. I especially like... Um, the, the scene of where you get a bunch of New Yorkers throwing shit at the Green Goblin. Which, okay, so this is this is another artifact. On, on the one hand, I love the idea of the people of New York deciding that they're not going to take any more shit from a supervillain, and they start razzing him and kind of lashing out at him with an old-fashioned, kind of good-natured mm-hmm. but surly New York attitude. You mess on with the, one of us, you mess with all of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but on the other hand, and that's the line... Um, this is the movie's 9-11 artifact. Uh, when 9, and we talked about this when, in the old sequel cast well, this when we was covered filmed. Uh, Men in Black 2. This was filmed before 9-11. In the year and a half after 9-11, uh, especially yeah. if they were in New York, had, sure. a, had, this, had a scene that only existed because it was a post-9-11 world. Uh-huh. And also, you know, remembering some of the marketing... Um, early marketing materials. It was a close-up of Spider-Man's face and reflected in his eyes with the two towers. 
They, yeah, there was also the first trailer was Spider-Man foiling a bank a bank heist by getting a helicopter trapped in the spider web spun between uh, the World mm, Trade Center towers. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, so they had to put yeah, some stuff out. But this the skyline, scene, this scene yeah. I feel it hurts the movie. It it dates it and it brings back a lot of memories that I and a lot of feelings that I don't want to have when I'm watching a Spider-Man movie. It's also a bit weird that uh, you think of, you know, Spider-Man's a relatively new hero in this movie. Why would people care that much about what's happening? Like, maybe in a sequel or something you could do this sort of scene? Oh, no, I, I know um, why. He's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and they're too smart to fall for J. Jonah Jameson's anti-Spider-Man screeds. <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson does not get enough to do in this movie, but you get enough of the idea of who he is, and it's it, it appears a lot of it's improvised, and... Uh, it, it's just, I cannot say enough good things about that performance. And, and they give him more to do in the sequels, which is nice. Especially Strangely in enough, one. he was the breakout star of this film. Uh, like, I feel like everything yes, he's done yeah. since then has happened only because of his role as J. Jonah Jameson. Especially if you look at his his performance as Cave Johnson in the Portal video games. Mm, right. It was a... Um, yeah, it was definitely a good kick in the pants to his career, and and uh, rose him to. I think he ended up winning an Oscar or something, or at least was nominated. No, I think he did win. Anyway, we'll, we'll and, and do some now, research for for next week's episode. Right, and you know, in uh, uh, J. Jonah Jameson is uh, Commissioner Gordon now in the, in the current DC films. Well, we'll 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 see how that plays out. I've already made my feelings about uh, about Justice League known. Yep. Um, so after this sort of rescue scenario, then you get the mano al mano stuff between between Gabi and Spidey, and I love that you get like a lot of punches in there. That that feels really corny, but in like the way of the old comics that they're trying to go for in this movie. Yeah, and I, and I'm glad they kept the goblins' defeat. I'm I'm really I'm really glad because this because this could have been another lame battle where they throw some punches, exchange some quips, and then due to happenstance the villain just falls off a high height and dies uh, off camera. Um, I when like Goblin they... takes his mask off and he's sniveling as Norman Osborn. Yeah, and, and it's... And... And it's, it's at that point, moment. and that's why why it works because in that moment the villain has a chance for redemption, but the villain chooses the villain chooses to completely give in to evil and to try to kill Spider Man by impaling him on the glider, not taking into account Spider Man's reflexes. Spider Man dodges and the Goblin gets impaled on his own glider. I love that they that the villain is allowed to defeat himself in this film. There's an insert shot that drives me nuts every time I saw it, and I even groaned when I saw it in the theater the first time. And it's when he he's setting the uh, glider to impale Spider Man. Spider-Man jumps out of the way, it's moving at full speed, you get a quick insert shot of Willem Dafoe's face going, oh, and then it impales him. And I think that, oh, really robs a moment of, I would have rather just, like, impaled him immediately. Yeah, it's like a half-second pause that, that slows it is. down the scene. And I, I it's could like see a tap in the brakes. Yeah, and on a comic book, you could get that, and it would work fine. I, I understand that. But, like, in a film, it's you're in the middle of this action sequence, and then it's this sort of weird scene where he's like, oh, like, I don't know. Like, had they cut from that to, like, slow motion or something, maybe that would have worked, but it, it was, it, it comes off as a bit weird, and uh, it, it's nice that Norman's last words are, don't tell Harry. 
and that, and that, and that sort of plays into the last scene, which I think is well done. It doesn't directly set up a sequel, but it sort of... Um, it, the characters are at a different point than where they were when they started the film. Yeah, and, and had there been no other movies, this would have been a nice end to the story. Why don't you explain the ending, then? Because it's at the funeral of Norman Osborn. Well, yeah, that essentially uh, what, it, what it comes down to is that they're, they're at this, this funeral and you can tell that Peter is considering telling Norman essentially the, 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 the firsthand truth of what happened, of, of how his father died, that he is in fact, that he is in fact Spider-Man. But then he, he keeps his mouth shut as he realizes that Norman, Norman now sees Spider-Man as the villain and clearly, clearly wants some kind of revenge. Hmm. And, and and you know and and this is this is kind of when Peter Parker has to make the choice between whether he's going to be living a double life, or whether he can be honest with the with the people around him. Well, and Mary Jane opens up to him and and stuff, um, but then he doesn't accept her advances, and so there's a lot of complicated emotional things going on. It's a it's a very bittersweet ending. Like it's not overly uh-huh. triumphant. Like you you can tell that that. Though they're everyone's in a better place than they were at the beginning of the movie, it's cost them all dearly. Yeah, you also in in this film I, I neglected to mention you have kind of a montage where Spider-Man is doing stuff and the public is talking about him. We get a cameo from Lucy Lawless, who previously worked with Sam Raimi on the uh, Hercules and Xena shows. Oh yeah, and she's almost unrecognizable. She has a punk rock attitude, and she's like. Oh, Spider-Man, does he have eight hands? That sounds hot. Oh, yeah, those man-on-the-street segments, which mm-hmm. I kind of wish they came back in the later films in a bigger way, because they were they were grounding. It was grounding. It was funny. It's less obvious business than a scene we'll get to next week in Spider-Man 2, where Spider-Man's in an elevator, and just a, a comedian's making jokes. Well, like, oh, it's itchy, yeah. isn't it? You know, it's a, a bit forced, but it, it's a nice... Um, another actor I recognize in the Man on the Street stuff is uh, the comedian Jim Norton. Oh, i got to ask, how do you feel about the busker who plays the Spider-Man theme song? Eh, not great. They only do more of that in the sequels for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. It's... I mean that that Spider-Man song is iconic. People remember that over the actual cartoon itself. But um, well, it's one of the best theme songs ever written. It is. It is. And yet, I I don't like how it's presented. I don't know. I would have I would have rather seen like a lounge arrangement of it or something. Um, but that they 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 bane on that joke over and over again in each of the films. Do they make a reference to it in the new Spider-Man Homecoming movie? There, they no one sings the theme song, but they do. Part of the musical score does use does use the sting, huh. but it's um, not like a hit you over the head thing. Like it actually feels warranted within within the soundtrack. Would it make you feel better if I told you in the Amazing Spider-Man Two, they use the itsy bitsy spider? Ah. Uh, Eight-legged freaks kind of did that to death, so I don't know. I don't know if that if that would work at all. 
Okay, so let's let's uh, start wrapping things up here. Um, I would say sequel, yes, great film. I'm gonna I'm gonna say sequel, yes, as well. Uh, it there there are some artifacts that date it, but overall, it's a very fun, very entertaining movie and and a good depiction of the character. Um, although this was the first movie, I actually came up with the term the Spider-Man phenomenon to to label something that I saw born out of this movie. Uh, what is that? And, and this, this I noticed all over college, particularly in our college's sequential art department. But one thing I noticed with every superhero movie that came out around this time, when people saw it in the theaters, they loved it. But by the time it came out on home video, everybody hated it. Mm. Uh, people turned on this movie real fast at least at least the fans that were within my own age group at the time and it and it all and with and it happened with the hulk it happened with spider-man 2 it happened with the other x-men movies it, when they saw it in the theaters greatest movie ever made by the time it came out on video they thought it was absolute shit and i have no idea why i guess they're trying to be cool by not liking it i don't know no no it was legitimate disgust to huh. the point where I wondered why did they keep seeing the movies. <laughs> right. Um, so pitch a sequel. What do you do for this? Oh, man. Well, if I if I were to do uh, pitch a sequel, I mean, in, in the regular movies, they do do Doc Ock, and that's pretty... That's, that's where you'd have to go, but I want to differentiate myself. So if I were to do a sequel... Uh, I would have uh, Spider-Man uh, face off against the Kingpin, who is you know Marvel's you know Lord of Organized Crime. Crime. I'd make yep. him the villain, and short version is Spider-Man's superheroics are making it difficult for Kingpin to reap in you know vast wads of cash through his criminal enterprise. So Kingpin starts doing what he can to beef up uh, the local gangs and syndicates that are under his control to to better deal with Spider-Man, and he hires Craven the Hunter. Who is a? If you've read the comic books, he's a big game hunter turned bounty hunter that is often dispatched to deal with Spider-Man. He is hired to. He's hired to to eliminate Spider-Man. He's like a hitman for superheroes. Is the way I'm going to reinterpret him. And mm. he's also an, an expert detective in his own right. So Craven the Hunter starts stalking Spider-Man. Learns Peter. Learns Spider-Man's secret identity as Peter Parker. Uh, and from that point on, it kind of becomes this paranoid thriller as Craven the Hunter starts to lay traps so that he can either uh, get Spider-Man to destroy himself or take out everyone that Spider-Man knows and loves all at the behest of the Kingpin. In the end of the movie, Spider-Man will uh, Spider-Man will defeat Craven the Hunter uh, mainly by by. Developed by getting some sympathy to exist between the two of them, because he will start to learn about Craven. He will learn about Craven the Hunter's background by using his his ace photographer skills and his access to the archives at the Daily Bugle. So, uh, in in the end, he'll get Craven to give up the chase. But then Spider Man goes after Kingpin, and it'll end triumphantly when Spider Man delivers Kingpin and a whole bunch of evidence on the steps of the New York Police Department. Pretty cool. And I'm going to call um, I'm going to call that Spider Man uh, High Crimes. There you go. Um, you know, I think if I were doing it, I would sort of combine a few different plots, but I would have uh, Venom in there, but also have Carnage. And both, um, really? Yeah, and I would kind of make some new story, kind of with the 
Venom, I think, first starting bad, but then going to Spider-Man's side, and they both have to fight against Carnage, who's just crazy and violent and dangerous. It would not be as off the rails as Maximum Carnage, because I think that would be too much for, for one movie, but something with Spider-Man and Venom and, and Carnage, and it would just be called Spider-Man Carnage. And would it still have a soundtrack by Green Jelly? Uh, it would, absolutely, just like the video game, which I loved very, very much. Um, now let's go on to what you're watching. Uh, you know, it's it's getting near October, and uh, we had a friend over at, at the house last night, and my wife said, oh, we should watch a, a Halloween movie, but it turns out she didn't like scary movies, and neither does my wife. And so we, instead of picking something for my collection, which I have a lot of the major horror franchises... Um, partially because of the show wanting to do them, but also because I like them. Uh, I, what we ended up picking was something on Netflix I had never seen before. I'm talking about The Craft from 1996. Oh, really? Starring Feruza Balk and Nev Campbell, Robin Tunney, and Rachel True. Yeah. And Skeet Ulrich is also in it. Um, it, it's not scary. <laughs> it, it gets kind of, you know, Feruza Balk especially gets nice and manic, uh, towards the end. Oh, no, she turns in a great performance. In that yeah, movie. I think she's she's very good. Um, the other actresses are just okay. It's sort of funny to see... Um, oh, what's her name? That damn it. B. Arthur. No, no, no. It's the... Uh, Christine Taylor is, uh, is in it, uh, who recently divorced from Ben Stiller. But she was Marsha in the Brady Bunch movies. Oh, that's She plays right. kind of the, the snooty girl that ends up losing most of her hair. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, some of the music is, is dated in the way people act or sort of dated. But uh, on the other hand, it's nice to see there's a scene where one of the characters um, almost gets raped. And then they want to get revenge, but they push it like too far. And it's, it, I don't know, there's a lot of interesting things going on. And I think it really gets good at the end where it's a lot of supernatural battling stuff going on. Um, I'm a bit surprised this never got a sequel, although there's one in development. Yeah, this this movie did, like, it did okay in the theaters, but as I understand it, it was a huge hit on home video. I yes, think yeah. every, woman, every woman that I knew at the time had a copy of this on VHS and then later on DVD. <laughs> And right, I've seen yeah. this movie many, many times. Not recently, unfortunately. I'd love to. Do you think it holds up? But it would be worth revisiting it. I, I think so. You know, I mean, like certainly some some of the clothes are sort of interesting. I was a bit shocked by the dialogue. One of the bullies calls the black girl in this film a negroid. Oh uh, yeah, it was like ah, that's that's not subtle. I thought that would have just had her call her a bitch or something, but um. You know, if you're going to motivate someone to do something bad, that's a good way to do it. Um, but no, I, I think it held up pretty good. Uh, some of the effects towards the end are awful, even considering when it was made. <laughs> but um, but especially Fruza Bulk's performance is just uh, is just great, and and the ending is very very cute. You get yeah, um, it, it is rather nice and tidy, but that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right, and uh, the, the director of this film, Andrew Fleming, also did such films as uh, Hamlet 2, uh, Nancy Drew, and the underrated um, political comedy Dick, 
in which Dan Hedaya played Nixon. Hey, quick, quick bit of shop talk for you. If we found a really good, I would dare say it, canonical film version of Hamlet, would you be interested in doing Hamlet and Hamlet 2 on the sequel cast? Sure, but I mean, there's been so many versions of Hamlet. There's the Kenneth Branagh four-hour version. There's the uh, uh, Laurence Olivier version. Well, we, we certainly would want to pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, but that, that that's an interesting idea in our back pocket. And frankly, with any Shakespeare, you could do that with all the different remakes they've done. How interesting. Um, all right, so what is, uh, what's something you've been watching? Right, well, it's also on the subject of superheroes. I watched the first six episodes of the new uh, Tick live-action series, which is currently... Oh, oh okay, yeah. There's, there's going to be another right. six, but they're going to be released in a block uh, later on this year. Sure, uh, I think that's a smart way to do it. I have not... I, I saw the pilot, or whatever it was, when Amazon has been doing this cool thing where they have um, pilots for different series, and then based on what votes they get... Um, from people that have watched them, uh, they choose what to make, which I think, I, I wish Netflix and other places would do that. I think that's a cool way to get the audience involved. And so I'd seen the pilot, but I had not seen this new series. And uh, what surprised me about the pilot is how much it focused on the emotional psychology of the moth. Um, of Arthur. Sorry, Arthur. Is he the moth? What, what's his superhero name? Oh, no, name? He, he never, his name is Arthur. That That is his, I, I see. his superhero okay. name. <laughs> Okay, my mistake. It's been Which a while. Which is a running um, gag uh, in the original comic book and the animated mm-hmm. series. And it's nice to see Ben Edlund has been involved in some version of all these different movies, and or not uh, TV shows, I mean, and cartoons and all these, in the comic books and so forth. Um, so what did you think about it? Overall, well, I, I, I watched the pilot, too, when it was first posted, and I don't remember if, if I talked about it on the sequel cast or not, but the pilot's got some problems. That being yeah. said, the, by the second episode, the series finds its legs, and it is very, very entertaining. So you do think Peter Serafinowicz uh, warms up to the part? Because I think Patrick Warburton was such great casting in the show from the uh, early 2000s. Well, The Tick is one of those rare characters where they've never been miscast. I think Serafinowicz okay. is doing a fantastic Tick. Great. Um... Like, he echoes Adam West, but never goes too far with it, and he allows his performance to be his own. Any notable um, like cameos, or do they have characters from the comic, or do they do all new characters because of rights issues? That was something it's, that... It's mostly, it's mostly new characters. I think the Terror and, and Miss Lint are the only the only real recurring characters. Although there is a there is a character that's clearly a reference to Dinosaur Neil from the animated series without actually being Dinosaur Neil. Um, but yeah, it's mo- mostly it's new characters uh, for this. And, and as long as we're talking about cameos, this continues the trend. Alan Tudyk is officially typecast as the grumpy robot. Meh. Okay. He has now played... Three grumpy robots that I know of. There could be a grumpy robot he plays that I don't know of, but that's his typecasting. If you got a grumpy robot, you got to go with Alan Tudyk. So are you also thinking of Rogue One and iRobot? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, that is. He also plays the voice of a chicken in Moana. Um, yeah, he, he's he's Disney CGI's lucky charm right now. Right. Uh, and he was the bad guy in Wreck-It Ralph, I think. Uh, yeah, he's yes, done a lot. Yes, he was. Where he's doing an imitation of uh, um, of, you know, uh, is... of Ed Wynn. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. The code, sweet lifeblood of the game. <laughs> we see they're doing a sequel to that called Wreck It Ralph Breaks the Internet, which is yes, and a I weird title, really... but when when the sequel was announced, the the creators of Wreck It Ralph. Um, they, they, they gave an interview and they brought up two things. Now, I don't know if this is what the movie is going to be about, but they said the two things they really want to explore is one, what if there's a second Wreck-It Ralph machine with its own Wreck-It Ralph that likes being a villain? And then two, huh. if the first film had Fix-It Felix Jr., who is Fix-It Felix Sr.? Okay. Um, I think either one of those could be the basis for a good movie. Although we'll we'll see whether they t- they explore either of those premises in the sequel. I also wonder if they'll get a better job of having more actual um, video game characters as cameos. Well, now now I be- I bet they will. I j- just like how they d- didn't have Barbie in Toy Story, but they did have Barbie in Toy Story Two. I suspect we're yeah. finally going to see Mario and Luigi in the second Wreck It Ralph. Oh, they wanted Mario in the first one, but Nintendo wanted way too much for him. Yeah, um, Nintendo yeah made it impossible. So they had they had Bowser, but didn't have him speak. Uh, well, pretty cool. Um, yeah. Anything else, or we should probably wrap this up. It sounds like you need to get out of your hotel room. No, unfortunately, I'm kind of behind on my watching because I had I had a very big deadline last week. Uh, oh, okay. And so writing sure. and filling in filling things in for that deadline kind of took all my time. So I didn't really have a chance to watch much. That being said, all my big deadlines are out of the way. I can get caught up on a lot at the end of September. So I will probably have to, a, uh, several yeah. things to talk about by next episode. Sure, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Orville. Yeah, that's something that I I feel like I have to see, and there's a, there's going to be a lot of grist to go over. So that is something I will be watching. Great, it's more sincere than the marketing makes it seem. And what's really funny is the music is like two notes off from Star Trek. Um, and speaking of which, today uh, this evening is when the new Star Trek Discovery series debuts. So we'll have a lot to talk about. As, as of this recording, yeah. I want, yep. I want to check it out. I don't want to subscribe to another service to do it. Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be online one way or another pretty quickly. Uh, I'll just Because it's Star Trek, I'll just say that. So, all right. Well, um, tune in next week. We'll be talking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. That's the one with Doc Ock. In which, oh, yeah. to promote it... The actor that played Dr. Octopus, who's Al- Alfred Molina, said, and I'll never forget this because he's, it's, it's a pretty um, honest thing for an actor to say. He's like, so in the movie, they make me have my shirt off. And when I do, you can see my fabulous pair of men tits. <laughs> uh, check well, us out on Twitter. I'm at M-A-T-W-B-T. I am at Internet Mayor. The show is at SequelCast2. Also follow us on Facebook. And uh, if you like the show, considering throwing a few dollars per month our way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash SequelCast2. We're gearing up um, material for that, so stay tuned. And um, We'll have yeah, some audio uh, commentaries coming your way. Yeah, yep. Uh, uh, an audio commentary for the cult movie, the number... I was going to say 42, that's not it. The Jim Carrey Show. What's that The called? 23. 23, yeah. 23, not 42. Um, all right, catch you next week where we talk about Spider-Man 2 for Sequel Cast 2. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Parker!
sequel cast 2 is a proud member of the battleship retention podcast fleet find another great film and tv podcast at battleshipretention.com the theme song to sequel cast 2 is written and performed by mark with the c listen to his music at markwiththec.com you can also listen to sequel cast 2 on the go at stitcher head on over to stitcher.com and search for sequel cast 2 to give it a listen this program is a proud member of the battleship pretension fleet 